This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, play script, direct. Welcome to the American Theatre Wings Working in the Theatre Seminars. This is the 23rd year that we've been doing these seminars, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're celebrating also the 50th anniversary of the American Theatre Wings Antoinette Perry Tony Awards. And we are so pleased to be able to bring you these seminars, which offer a wonderful view of what it is to work in the theatre what it is to hear from the performers, the producers, the playwrights, the directors, the designers, the choreographers, and all the people that make the theater come alive and bring the magic of theater to the audience. It is a rare opportunity to be able to hear right from these professionals that work in the theater. We are awfully pleased to be able to say that since we first introduced these seminars, there have been over 800 of Broadway and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway's greats to be part of the seminar, which is perhaps one of the best archives of theatrical history that one could have as we go back through the years and see and listen to the people that have been a part of, of working in the theater seminars. Many of you already know that the American Theater Wing is famous for its Tony Award which is given for the achievement of excellence in the theater. And it, it's a wonderful award, and it, it stayed pretty much untarnished through all these years. But the American Theater Wing does more than just the Tony Awards. We are a service organization, and throughout the year, we say theater to the community through the theater. We achieve that goal by bringing as much theater as we can to public schools, to high schools, to hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. We particularly target this to young students in high schools who are coming to Broadway for the very first time uh, to see a Broadway show. This made possible by the cooperation of the producers and the American <coughs> Theatre Wing and the Board of Ed. In addition, our newest program, Theatre in School, has professionals like you will listen to today that go out to the schools and talk to the students on a one-to-one -one basis on what it is to be a director, a playwright, and how to be a choreographer and what it takes and giving them role models. And, and it's a wonderful program. And we are indeed pleased that the American Theatre Wing has this wonderful relationship 
and respect of the theater industry that we can call upon these people to do this. We are proud of the work we do, happy to be here, and pleased indeed that the theatrical community is so cooperative. And we are indeed grateful to all of you who are represented here today of the community. I'm going to go on with this seminar, which is on the playwright, the director, and the choreographer today. And we have Brendan Gill, co-chair, uh, with George White. Brendan is, what are you now? You're a reviewer in residence or critic in residence at? Call at me the, anything. <laughs> anything. He is anything and can be anything. He is but head and shoulders above everything else. He loves the theater and is the most knowledgeable man. And George White, who is president of the O'Neill Foundation in Waterford, Connecticut, is a director, an esteemed one at that, both here and abroad. And I'm going to turn this over to them right now so they can, will get into what it is to work in the theater from the viewpoint of the playwright, the director, and the choreographer. George, Brendan. Brendan. Thank you. Names and the weights of all the players. Farthest on my right is Marley Zierby, uh, choreographed the current hit musical Rent, and is working on the Boston production of that same show. Boston is a small city somewhere to the north of us. <laughs> she has worked all over the United States, creating work for many theater and dance companies. And next to her is Melvin Bernhardt, who is the director of The Blues Are Running at the Manhattan Theater Club. He has directed the New York productions of Crimes of the Heart, Da, The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon, Marigolds, and A.R. Gurney's Children. And right next to me is Mary Rogers, composers of one, composer of Once Upon a Mattress, president of the board of the Juilliard School, daughter of Richard Rogers, representative of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, author of children's books, and mother of five, which is impressive even to me, who am the father of seven. <laughs> <laughs> George? Uh, thank you, uh, Brendan. On my far left is uh, David Henry Huang, who, whose play Golden Child is now at the Public Theater. He wrote uh, M. Butterfly for Broadway, uh, and also was the author of FOB, The Dance and the Railroad, face, in Face Value, and was appointed by, in uh, 1994 by President Clinton to the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. Um, next to him, on, on David's right, is Nikki Silver, uh, who wrote the play Fit to be Tied, which is playing at Playwrights Horizons. His other plays include Free Will and Wanton Lust, My Marriage to Ernest Borgnine, uh, The Food Chain, Raised in uh, Captivity, and Pterodactyls, and several more plays with very interesting titles. <laughs> On my immediate left is David Warren, uh, who earlier this season directed uh, Tennessee Williams' uh, Summer and Smoke, uh, and at present, his production of Fit to be Tied can be seen at Playwrights Horizons. He has also directed two other uh, of Mr. Silver's plays, Pterodactyls and Raised in Captivity. And I would like to, I think, uh, get the puck on the ice, as they say, uh, <laughs> by, by uh, uh, starting with, um, uh, just so we keep everybody on their toes, you never know where I'm going to start, but I will start with Melvin. Uh, I wanted to uh, uh, talk a little bit about, if you would, or help us uh, talk about the playwright's relationship to the director, the director's relationship to the playwright. Um, 
uh, of course, it, a lot of that is chemistry. It has to do with the, you know, interpersonal relationships. Very, very tricky. Would you start by talking a little bit about that? Because I think this would be a, a good way to get going. Well, when I was thinking about this subject, um, I started out as uh, uh, an assistant to the director, Alan Schneider. Um, I did not work on uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but he had done that, and, and it was an extraordinary production. While I was working as his assistant, someone else had done a production that was totally different from Alan's production. It was abstract in, the way, in, in most ways and so on. And I asked Alan about that approach to it, and he said, the responsibility of a director when he is working with a playwright on a new play is to put the vision of the author on the stage. And his first responsibility is to do that, rather than to take off in any kind of interesting directions of his own. Um, and I think, <clears throat> I asked Kazan, Leah Kazan, the, the father of my generation of directors, um, once about <clears throat> the fact that he had given up directing in the theater in order to write novels. Um, and he said he felt that as a director, his job was to get inside the head, the mind, the spirit of the author. And with his craft skills, to execute a production as if the, the, the writer was doing it. Um, and he said he finally got very frustrated because he felt he was being Tennessee Williams, he was being Arthur Miller, he was being Robert Anderson, but he wasn't being Aaliyah Kazan. And he started to write those novels. Um, and I, th I think that's, we do have a responsibility when we do the initial production. Why do you suppose he didn't start writing plays? He f didn't, I, I think he said he didn't think he had those gifts. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. the, uh, the novel is easier. That, that's, you, can, you can do anything you want in a novel, get away with murder, uh, literally, uh, but, but, uh, <laughs> but not, on, not on the stage. That is the hardest possible form. Yeah. But, but uh, it would be interesting whether any other directors feeling the same frustration uh, have, have tried themselves more to write uh, plays. And uh, I, don't, I can't think offhand of anybody who was, who has done that. I can't either. Is a, no, David, have you? Several we can call. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, yes, it uh, Well, let's, let's actually, uh, David, what has been your uh, experience with uh, directors? Did you, have, have you had generally uh, a relationship with one director throughout or one that you would like to continue to direct yeah, your plays? I seem to have no continuous relationships. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I would, uh, I'd, you know, I, I'd like to, um, but in general, I've worked with a variety of uh, directors, and um, I think what's always tricky is trying to have that moment where you meet the director for the first time, and you try to decide in a relatively short period of time, um, are we going to get married? Um, and it's somebody sets it up. It's you know, it's sort of like a date, and and you sit there and try and judge from how they talk about the play and how I talk about the play, whether or not we're compatible. And for really, on, on, a, on very little information, you then go into this quite extensive collaboration that's you know, quite intimate in a certain way. Um, and when I was working with, um, when John, with John Dexter on M. Butterfly, for instance, uh, John, I think, had a method that was quite useful. Um, he, he had us read the play together out loud. And he took half the roles, and I took half the roles. 
And that way, without having to sort of discuss the theory of it per se, we were able to see if our approaches to the characters seemed to be similar. And that was sort of a, a very interesting way to have that kind of date. And, um, but in general, there, you know, there's so many ways that you try to determine from a brief meeting whether or not a director is right for the material. David, what, what uh, and, uh, and Nikki, you guys can talk about, I mean, you, you have worked together a lot. Um, what, what is your take on that? How do, both of you, in terms of obviously you're on the, probably the same wavelength, would you? Well, uh, we also read M. Butterfly together quite a bit, and <laughs> 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 we knew it was going to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I, I would agree with, uh, with Melvin, I guess, quoting Kazan. Uh, when you do a new play, it isn't your task to have a take on the play as, as much as it is to help the author give birth to the play. It's a kind of midwifery, if that's how you say that word. Um, I, unlike Kazan, at, th at this moment, to me, that's very exciting. It doesn't seem uh, like a subordinate role. It seems like a very creative and exciting role. Um, but uh, I, I think that it, it doesn't happen unless the director and the writer have a kind of essential connection, a sort of aesthetic connection. And I think that Nikki and I do. So uh, I trust his vision, he trusts mine. And uh, we sort of like working together, which I think makes, it, that goes a long way. How, lo uh, how long has it been in a tradition in the theater, if anybody knows, uh, that to be a director? Not that long. No, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Like it's, it's like there never were conductors of symphony orchestras right. in the old days. And then that became a, a new profession. The profession of director is probably maybe 100 years old, right. but may, maybe not more. Birman Tree and people like that always directed themselves. Yeah. And in this country, that was always the tradition. And I don't know who the first director was, but it's wonderful how in America we multiply professions anyway. Right. We're always thinking of brand new ones. But the, but the work done has to be done, I would think, in, with a sense of comradeship. I can't imagine it's working otherwise unless, uh, of course, Kazan was a very vehement personality. He was a tremendous, he could have cowed uh, a less strong uh, playwright than, than, uh, uh, than Arthur Miller, for example, who was not going to be cowed by anybody. But your method would not be to cow people. Well, I, I think all of us who direct feel that this is a collaborative thing we do. Um, you collaborate with the writer. Uh, it's very difficult for writers to take their work and hand it over. But indeed, that's what happens. And then the other collaborators come in, the designers, and the actors, and then ultimately the audience. Mary, have you done directing uh, as well as everything else? No. <laughs> Not yet. No, and I wouldn't know where to begin. Mm -hmm. It's an arcane activity, as far as I can make it. I should think, though, that it depends a lot for a director on how much the writer is indicated. For instance, Terence McNally in Love, Valor, and Compassion evidently had no scenic uh, instructions at all, which, right. which gives the director either more leeway or a horrifyingly <laughs> loose thing to aim at or, or try to satisfy. That was true on, on the, the show I'm doing now with two things. Um, the author and I did sit down and read the play together. That I read the play all the time. To, with David, or with, and I have with other directors. I sit yeah. down and I don't read with them because if I'm not talking, I'm not listening, but I just will read, <laughs> not just read the whole damn play. I'll just sit and drink and smoke and read the whole play to them. 
No, we actually, it's a, it's a two-hander, and we actually read this play to each other, and that's how we got married. Um, but um, uh, the point I was just about to make. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, yes, we had no scenic indications, oh, right. except that this, from the dialogue, I discerned that this play takes place in Central Park. Mm. Uh, but it, um, uh, and the collaboration with Jim Newman's the scene designer, and, and uh, uh, Ken Posner, the lighting designer, and the sound designer, Ray Schilke, has just created a whole, it's challenging because there are different realities in the play. But I would think that's a very stimulating challenge because yes. you, you know, uh, unlike uh, a word from my sponsor Eugene O'Neill, who wrote everything <laughs> out, uh, every, every where every chair was to be, it, 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 right. this would I would think give you a, a much more fun to collaborate that way. Uh, I mean, Marlies, I was going to uh, say since you are a choreographer, um, how do you work in relationship? to the director? Do they, do they lean on you in the nice sense or on, in the pejorative sense in terms of making things happen? Well, actually, most of the directors that I've worked with tend to give me a little room and that the way that I work, because I use gesture as a basis for the movement language, is so connected to the script um, that, in a sense, as I'm working with the actors, there's a bit of directorial language that goes on in getting um, them to connect to the movement as if it was a second language for them. So I tend to have a lot of leadway, and I tend to have to really sit close to the director in that um, I don't tend to go away on my own a lot. I tend to sit there even when there are scenes going on that I may not choreograph at all, because it's very important for me to um, know who the actors are as people and then as they are as the characters and then to hear the language of the director so that when I go off and begin to work I can still um, I, we don't bump heads. How in the world did you learn that silent language that you go back and forth? Because oh, that's a hard thing. Gosh. You can't be taught. You mm -hmm. have to have experienced it. Now what was your experience? Well I've had a vast experience. <laughs> um, I would say that it probably started, I noticed that this gestural language that I started playing with happened when I was in San Jose State University, and I developed this piece. Um, I don't even remember the name of the piece that I started playing with, but eventually it became a piece called The Sometimes Crazies. I'm also a, a, a choreographer that works in the contemporary uh, modern dance scene, so that's the basis by which I work. And I think that I don't really, I really connected that I realized that a lot of my language came from um, a relationship with my mother who was a contemporary dancer in her time or what was called an interpretive dancer of her time and I didn't realize it until I saw myself improvising on video hmm. and then I realized it was just like it, it was it was like speaking and it had a, a real relationship to jazz music in that way which is sort of what she uh, improvised to a lot in that there was a call and response or there was a language it was it was all about language um, and so as I choreographed, I just became very interested, and I call them gesture dances. And I worked a lot with um, contemporary writers and directors who are sort of working in alternative theater forms, and sort of, sort of that marriage of how I work sort of just fit right into it. So it was great to see it come together in Rent, which well, you is a must whole have different been, thing. You must have started as a baby then. Yes. How did you I started off, I would say my first choreographic work was in my bedroom with some friends to James Brown. 
Mm -hmm. You know, and I just jumped up and started creating work that way. And then from there, I did some formal training um, as a youngster and then just Where? fought against it. Where did you oh, in Okinawa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a long history. Yeah. But I, I, I traveled a lot. My father was in the service, mm -hmm. and I'm not an army brat. Uh, <laughs> that's the language that's used a lot. It was actually very difficult, but exciting. Um, and so I, I just have a vast experience. I, I did disco dancing for a while um, between high school and college and made money, snuck into clubs and did disco dancing. Um, studied uh, modern dance from people like Aaron Osborne, who's sort of like a Lar Lubavitch kind of a L Jose Limon sort of style of, of work. Actually never studied jazz, but then again from the experience of my mother had it in my body. So found that when I would go to take a jazz class, a good jazz class, because there's not too many good jazz classes around anymore, um, that I could naturally do it easily. You sound like a character in a Nikki Silver play. You ask a question and the answer comes out, Okinawa. Yes. Well, that's a very daring, that you do that kind of thing all day long. I, what kind of thing are you talking about? What does that mean? <laughs> David, you talked about when you first met the director, is, it, is that the way it happens? And, and this marriage is going to take place, this responsibility that you're turning over, is it just in first meeting casually like that? Don't you have a say in who the director is that you that well, Certainly, you want? but I mean, that's, that's why you have these meetings. You have these meetings to try to determine um, who it is that I want to work with in this play or whatever the particular situation might be. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's a multitude of different ways that these meetings come about and it may be that there's someone whose work I admire and who I've always wanted to work with and, that, and we set things up and, and by the way it's not just a matter of the playwright approving on the director it's also the director is also trying to decide if he mm -hmm. wants to, or she wants to get into this marriage as well so um, uh, for, for any particular reason that this uh, pairing comes about in this lunch or whatever it is um, that's usually where the decision starts to be made as to whether or not uh, these two people are going to commit Have to Have you ever together. broken off the relationship once you got into it? Yes, yeah. you said? Oh, yeah. all the time. I, I mean, I, haven't you? Yeah, you mm -hmm. do it. It happens all the time. Now, after a few years, I mean, now I, I have sort of a couple. I work with David a lot, and I, I, you know, I've worked with Bob Falls. I'll probably work with him again. But the first play that Dave, of mine that David directed, I had been working like directing my own plays and producing them myself in what's ostensibly a garage and like on 11th Avenue for mostly hobos and hookers but they were a very appreciative audience <laughs> because it was heated <laughs> and they were so thrilled that I didn't I had very long plays because they could just sit there in the warm and so um, I mean they weren't really very good but anyway and uh, so and then Doug Abel said he wanted to produce he runs the vineyard he wanted to produce pterodactyls and uh, and he set up, I didn't know, I was so poor, I, was, I, hadn't, I couldn't afford to ever go to the theater. And I'd been out of school a long time, so the um, American Theater Wing that brings school, theater to schools had passed me by. And um, <laughs> so I didn't know who any of these people were, so I had lots of meetings with directors. And, and, mm -hmm. and they were much more established than I was, so they would sit down and tell me what they thought my play was about and what style it should be. And I said, well, it was really nice meeting you, and I think I left my tub running or something. <laughs> And, uh, and I, didn't actually, I, I didn't actually meet David. We committed uh, because of a phone call. I had this list of directors that Doug Abel gave me, and I had met with several of them. One, I don't, none of you, I'm sure, saw pterodactyls, but 
um, there's a dinosaur skeleton throughout the play, and one of the first directors I met with, who's sort of an ipsy-pipsy big deal, I was impressed with her credits, and um, she said to me, I think you should cut the dinosaur. Well, the play is called Pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just, like, that was the, yeah, so sometimes you do, so anyway, I was in Washington directing this play at the Willie Mammoth Theater, and I had this phone number, and I called, and I, and I had left the fax with David's credits, but I remembered I was supposed to call him, so I said, uh, um, this is Nikki Silver, and he had read the play already, and I said, I, 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 listen, I said, you know, I, I've met with all directors, like ten directors in the last week, and they've all told me what they thought my play was about, and I didn't really uh, agree with any of them, so I'll tell you what it's about. And if you agree, fine, and if you don't, then that's fine, too. We can just part. So I told him what I thought it was about, <laughs> and he said I that... I said, all right. He said, all right, all right sure. And, um, and then I said, no... And he was really insulted by this, but I didn't realize at the time, you're not really, it was very bad form, because I had lost the facts with his credits, and I said, now what the hell have you directed? <laughs> <laughs> then he told me. Well, it was embarrassing. I mean, you, yeah, sometimes no, it is this strange blind date that, that uh, David described. Ideally, you have, the writer has some sense of the director's work, so there's some context. Had I had any sense. <laughs> <laughs> had, you, had you known. Uh, but uh, I remember feeling very offended because I thought, well, you know, I'm, you know I, I have credits. Uh, but, th but I loved his play so much that I sort of got over myself and I kind of recited my credits. Mm -hmm. And then he said... Oh, you're much too big a deal to work with me. You'll never take me seriously. You'll just dismiss all of my ideas. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> That was how we got married. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, and I always say the most important thing for me with a director is a director who can yell at me and feel like I, it's all right and whom I can cry in front of and feel it's all right. Because then that sort of is our relationship. He yells, I cry. So, uh, which they don't really teach in school how to figure that out. But that's the most important thing. Is to, is not, because it's very emotional and you need to like know that you can... The leakage here is terrible. There's a horrible spill going on off camera. It's very disturbing to me. But uh, you need to know that you can just have a fit. You want to Actually, tell people what the spill is before they get really alarmed? Yeah. Mr. Wang had an accident. <laughs> you remember we had an actor on the, on the town I went on, a fairly successful young man, and he said that he auditioned directors. He would go for a part. I saw that, and it was so offensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the interesting thing was that he would say to the director, tell me what you think the play is about, having read the play. And if the director had a completely different slant than he had visualized it, he thought, well, no, I don't want to work with this director because we're not going to be able to work together if we're so far apart in our thinking on the play. Well, I and think that's true. I mean, is it true in the writer-director collaboration? I, I te actually teach directing at Brooklyn College. And my students often ask me, you know, what do you do if the writer won't make these changes that you think he should make? And I always say, well, if you've gotten to this point where you've formed teams, you've made a terrible mistake. Either you oughtn't be working with that writer, or he or she oughtn't be working with you, or you've done something wrong. It's, if, if you're not all sort of serving this play together, if you don't kind of essentially agree, if the writer doesn't trust you enough to really listen to your ideas, and you don't trust the writer enough to listen to his or her ideas, uh, you're not really, in my opinion, a, a director of new plays. You, you don't understand the interaction. Um, there's nothing that, I, I would hope, there's nothing that Nikki 
uh, ever feels he can't say to me or, or ask me about what, why does the actor make that cross? Couldn't he sit earlier? Don't you think that light cue is being called too soon? Uh, is that the look? If he looks at a costume sketch, why green? Why not red? I mean, if, if you can't, if we can't sort of ask each other those questions, uh, sort of in the spirit of collaboration, then then I think that as a director, that uh, one should only direct revivals. Do you change your attitude with other playwrights? No, I, 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 I love working with writers. Mm. I, first of all, I like having them around. In fact, when I directed Summer and Smoke, I invited Nikki a lot because I liked having a playwright mm. around. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I like, I is mean... Is it better with the, it is with well, the, with the it, dead playwright? It, it, no, it's not bad. It's, it's, they're completely different. It really is apples and oranges. But I like, to be, I like being able to say to the writer, what, you know, we're having trouble with this moment. What, what does she really want here? And the writer can say, you know, I can sort of tap dance with an actor for 15 minutes. And then the writer will say, well, no, the character's lying. She doesn't mean that. And then the actor sort of finds clarity. I would rather say at that moment, Nikki, what is going on in this moment? Mm -hmm. I, my ego doesn't sort of get in the way of that. Um, and I think if one's ego gets in the way of asking those questions and involving the writer that way, then... As I said earlier, then you should direct revivals. Where you're the star of the show. I, I wanted to pick up on too about about dealing with the with the text, with the script. And uh, I know that Melvin, uh, I uh, to throw a bouquet. I know that you are really a genius at this, and in dealing with with text and with scripts. How does one learn that uh, to to deal with with script analysis to find? Uh, do you learn that? Is there, a, or is, are you born with that in terms of analyzing a play, having bringing something as a director to it, other than just moving people around? Um, uh, it's practice, I suppose. If if uh, what if it's, it's anything, I think you just immerse yourself in the material, and it tells you where to go. And if it's in the not best there. of circumstances, yeah. Uh, if it's not there, then you shouldn't do the play. And how do you feel about dead playwrights versus living playwrights? Living ones are more fun. <laughs> <laughs> They're better conversational. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what were you before you were an assistant director? Uh, waiting to be. <laughs> waiting to be an assistant. I always were you an be, actor? Or, uh, or? Oh yeah, I did some acting. Oh, that's but what I want. You wouldn't want to see it. <laughs> All right. Um, no, I just uh, from the time I was twelve and saw the f first live theater. I just knew I had to be in the theater. Yeah. Majority of, of directors that have been here have been actors before, I think, more so than actors into playwrights. It's mostly actors into di directors. Yeah. You know, in the old days, it used to be... In the old days, it used to be... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it used to be that you really, you, you, you got to directing via being a stage manager. I did that. Yeah, and a lot of, so that, and then you got the, you, directed the road production mm -hmm. and that was how you sort of wove I guess that this has changed a lot. It's changed a lot now. There are other changes for instance um, in the old days whenever they were. Uh, <laughs> directors I think yeah. didn't always have the kind of partnership that you guys are talking about. You get somebody like George Abbott and you did not argue with Mr. Abbott. Um, and he wasn't terribly interested in what your vision of the play was. He was interested in what his vision was. And I don't think there are, fortunately, that many directors left like that. Not that George wasn't wonderful, but you have to be willing to be captain of the ship and, and mm -hmm. adept at it if you take on that kind of responsibility. Well, now, Mary, picking up, you're, you're going into a, a, a revival of Once Upon a Mattress, and um, as the person that created this, um, 
do you have one a say about the director, a major say, obviously you would. Uh, what uh, are the, what did you bring to this? What did you look for in a director? Because obviously it's not the same go around. And, and, and also the, it's obviously different from a revival because people remember this, or some people do, and some people fresh. So all of those things obviously are going on in your head when you, when you do this. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? It was a little different for us because Jerry Gutierrez and I have been hoping that this show would get revived for something like 20 years. He's always wanted to do it. And he's, he's a perfect person for it because he is a trained musician who then turned around and, and graduated. He was in the first graduating class at Juilliard in the acting division. Uh, I didn't have to look for anybody, and I can't imagine anybody better to work with. He's very bossy, too, which is I kind of like, because I don't know anything about directing. And it'd be interesting to find out w what David and, and Nikki feel about all of that, because I have no idea how anybody directs or what it means, and I can't even tell the difference until I see a good show and then a bad show, the same show, uh, what a director's contribution necessarily is. I don't even go to rehearsal very often, because at this point, they're moving people around the stage, and I'll just get in the way or not know what they're doing. Interesting. Would you want to speak to that? Um, I mean, I've directed a couple times. I directed some of my early work, and I've directed some, some other plays, uh, mostly in the Bay Area when I was younger. Um, and I think what I basically found is that I, I, I don't mind directing, but I'm too lazy to do it. I don't really like having <laughs> to show up every day. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, the, I like sitting at home and sort of writing and, you know seeing my kid, and you know, that's, that's, that's a good life. Um, and like right now, my show is in tech, and so they're doing 12-hour days and focusing lights, and I, I don't have a great deal of interest in that. And I also think that I've learned that I have sort of a better, um, I'm sort of conceptually visual in that I, I'm able to sort of create situations that I think someone who was actually visual could stage in, in, in a way that it would be interesting, but I don't know how to do it. I mean, I don't know how, I'm not very good at thinking of sets or that sort of thing. So. As a result, it's, it's best for me, I think, just to be a writer and, uh, or justice. But uh, directing, I think, doesn't, uh, doesn't finally appeal to me. So as a writer, how early on did you decide to be a playwright rather than a novelist or a poet? Almost everybody begins as a poet, as far as I can tell. Yeah, count. no, I, I always wanted to only be a playwright. I mean, mm -hmm. as, I didn't always want to be a writer, but as soon as I got to college and began seeing some plays, um, I just thought, well, something, I don't know. I, I started to think I can do that, or yeah. I like the idea of, uh, having live people I can manipulate around. I mean, it might be sort of megalomaniacal, I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, no other form of writing really interested me. What That's, was your first play? Um, I wrote a play about um, the comic strip character Green Lantern. Um, I saw that. And sent it to people. I didn't realize you had to get you know, rights at that point. Uh, and sent it, <laughs> sent it around to theaters. And um, actually, this Golden Child is a co-production between the public theater and South Coast rep. And Jerry Patch, who's the dramaturg at South Coast, uh, actually wrote me a very encouraging letter. He, he has no memory of this. But he wrote me a letter, and it was the first sort of encouragement I'd gotten from a, a real theater. And uh, so I always kind of have a special place in my heart for Jerry. And then what? And then, then go on a little bit about your, was this when you were in college? Or uh, yeah, that was when I was in college. And then uh, I was home. I, I grew up in LA. I was born and raised there. And so I was home in LA for the summer between my junior and senior years, and I saw an ad in the LA Times calendar It said, study playwriting with Sam Shepard. So I thought, that was, that's good. And I clipped it and sent it in. 
And it turned out to be the first year of the Padua Hills Playwrights Festival, which since then became uh, pretty well known. But because it was the first year, there were only two of us that applied to be students. We both got in. <laughs> and, uh, that summer I began to sort of learn about writing from my unconscious and stuff and started to uh, realize that there were some concerns in my unconscious that had to do with, uh, you know, issues of uh, my background and uh, uh, ethnicity and culture and stuff like that uh, that started to come out in my work. And I wrote um, FOB, which became my first play that eventually went to the O'Neill Festival and then got staged in uh, New York at the public. And then I sort of had a career. <laughs> <laughs> and an agent? Uh, yeah, I got an agent after, after the O'Neill. How did that happen? Uh, Michael Feingold, actually, who's a critic for The Village Voice, said, uh, have I got an agent for you? <laughs> and uh, um, I, I signed with Helen Merrill, and she was my agent for a number of years, and we had a very nice relationship. Should yeah. anybody be talking about, do we want to get into the, the whole sort of ugly slash interesting topic of what the director actually owns these days? Because mm. that concept is, is changing. Uh, sure, why not? So I think, that's okay. I think it's a very important marriage. Just share it on his back, baby. <laughs> 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 but I just want to say, before, before you do that, that I go to every single rehearsal. I'm at every minute of tech. I'm at every <laughs> design meeting, every note session. I look at every light bulb thread. Uh, does anybody get any work done? I know, it's a shock. <laughs> <laughs> I do. But, but, but his, what about but, casting? I'm at every audition. Oh, but, but the thing is, Nikki's presence in those meetings and in those rehearsals is, is neither intrusive nor um, <laughs> sort of dominating. I mean, I think he, one thing he always says, and I think it's true, is that he sits at home and writes alone all the time. He wants to be there when we're rehearsing. He wants to, to sort of be part of that process. And um, that's the reward. Uh, that, yeah, it seems, it seems perfectly appropriate to me. Now, if, I, if, if Nikki's personality in rehearsal were... Uh, like it is now. <laughs> ...was disturbing to the cast in some way, then, you know, I would talk to him about it. But the fact is, um, it's not. And he's actually just a kind of, sort of a beneficent presence in, in, mm -hmm. the, in the process. And I think the, I, I like That's the... That's a very reassuring one, too. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I like, I like the actors feeling comfortable with him and being able to say to him, you know, help me with this line, do I need to say it, I feel like I'm already playing this. And if he were some kind of strange and intimidating stranger who just made sort of occasional appearances, uh, I think we'd all feel more... We'd all, I think, perhaps be more nervous uh, about, him having, about having him around. Well, now, Nikki, you, you also said that you, you started directing your own work. And uh, do you think that taught you something both yes. positively and negatively? But I imagine positively, too. Oh, so you positively. Know that, yeah. Oh, it did. I mean, you learn. I mean, having worked for about, I worked for about six years in this garage, in what's the, it's called the Sanford Meisner Theater. It has no relationship to the man whatsoever. Um, it was simply named that so that they could have an event that would hopefully get some publicity. And they called, like, his foundation. They said, can we name it the Sanford Meisner Theater? And they said, oh, all right. And, um, and but, you, you know, it was, one of, it was like Judy and Mickey. We built sets. We hung. I mean, it was exactly that for about six or seven years. And you learn how to do everything. And you learn, you learn when to shut up and when to talk. And, well, not completely, obviously, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, but it does. You learn how to do everything. I only wanted to bring up that I go to everything because you had these two stay-at-homes making it sound. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know, they move around. I'm there every single damn minute. 
and enjoy it immensely. I don't like to watch the play. I can't imagine that anybody does. <laughs> no, I don't like to watch the play. That makes me uncomfortable. Tell me about like one thing uh, which comes up with directors all the time, which is that actors often want to make more than mere suggestions that they really begin to think that the play is theirs. And then for the director, he has to mollify that character, that actor who is pushing a little too hard. Yeah, but again, it's, I don't know how you let the event becomes so distorted that that's happening. Obviously, the playwright wrote the play, and the actors do not write the play. Right. If an actor is that uncomfortable with a role, uh, early on in rehearsal, I would take the actor aside and say, if you don't believe in this play, go find another play. Jean um, Smart was saying yesterday that the moment she read the, the play, she knew that that character was the character she wanted to play. Yeah. She was mad to play. Well, the only part. woman in it. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that. that. Yeah. <laughs> something also, though, about the, the actors that can assist the writers in helping to find what it is that they've Absolutely. written in the process. And they do. That. And I mean, I think Jean, you know, made some interesting suggestions, had some very mm -hmm. sort of important questions about uh, several events in the play. Mm -hmm. And that does help the writer. But again, I'm, that helps the writer. Right. It, it, if an actor views his or her job as being some kind of dramaturg editor, then yeah. maybe no, they should become so writers. not so much a dramaturg editor, but I think, I, I think that there's something incredible about the process of Absolutely. theater, about the process of yeah. putting a work together, that there is discovery. Yeah. And that, you know, yes, sometimes you can create work and, and you can know everything about that work, but in the reality, most times we don't. Right. You know, most times we, whatever it is that you've done, whether it be that you've written it or whether you've choreographed it or directed it, um, is, is the process of, and the wonder of putting the work together right. is the process of discovering what all is there and maybe even what is there that is not obviously there. And I think the, actor, the actor's role is really important because most of us who, who uh, write plays, we write a lot in rehearsal. We come into a situation where the play is, uh, at the beginning of the rehearsal, we get the play to be as good as we can, but once you hear it and once you start mm -hmm. to see it in front of an audience, obviously things change. And Consciously or unconsciously, I find, I guess consciously since I'm talking about it, I find myself uh, sort of writing for the actors that have been cast uh, because it's uh, still trying to hold on to my vision, of course, but basically the form is literary, but at the same time it's about creating an event. Mm -hmm. And the event has to do with these particular individuals who we've now decided should inhabit these roles. And if there's something that they're better at or they can do more strongly than something else, I have a tendency to then start to move the rewrites in that direction. Yes, now that's a very, uh, yeah. in, in the old days with Moliere or Shakespeare, all those people, they all wrote for specific actors. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were also companies in those days, so you knew what you were doing. Well, Moliere wrote all his parts for himself because he had a bad cough, so he put, he put his bad cough in the play. Everybody laughed at him every time he coughed. Mm -hmm. But uh, it isn't traditional anymore for playwrights to, to think, now I will have a, I'm going to write a play about a certain, uh, in, that would be fit for a certain actor. But you can do that in the course of rewrite. Mm -hmm. Now, have, uh, have you, Nikki, ever written for a particular person? Uh, no, and I think, I don't think, I think it is, I think, oh my God, if I say I think one more time to start that sentence, I, but I believe <laughs> that it is only the foolish writer like myself who does not, because the way to really make money these days is to write plays good, bad, or indifferent for huge movie stars and get them on Broadway. And um, that's really where the money is, and it doesn't matter. The play might be fabulous, it might be, you know, not so fabulous, but if you write a great sort of tour de force for, you know, some Hollywood-esque, 
glamour puss. Um, you'll rake it in, baby. So I think I'm going to go home today and actually start that kind of project. <laughs> this, like, purging my soul has been very nice. But, you know, I think it's really time to Evans go. Every is an exception. Ed Harris, a great movie actor, is also giving a great performance. Oh, they, I did, they, cannot, they, they usually do give great performances. Right. But I think there's this, there's this very sort of obvious trend, you know, uh, where, and I don't want to obviously be specific, but where, where sort of me, where plays get rather lukewarm responses, but have very grand performances in them, and grand, and usually it's a big movie star, and the, yeah. you know they make a lot of money. But, but you are working. Need a typewriter. The late playwright Harry Condolian, who's uh, who's a friend of mine, said. If you want to get a star in the play, what you have to do is write one of these plays where one person is on stage the entire time and everybody else just comes in and out. And so I wrote in Butterfly. <laughs> in Rent, you are, you're dealing with a lot of people who have not been on stage before. Mm -hmm. How do they take direction? How do you get through to them? How, how are mm -hmm. they... I think it took a while for, for some people just to understand the language. I mean, we had to develop a common language because I come from a particular... It was like, the, the interesting thing about Rent, I think, between the collaboration of the, the actors, the director and the designers, is that we all came from different worlds. Um, some of the actors came from, or some of the performers were now are actors, right, who came from a musical background. So they were very musical-oriented. And as they looked at the, 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 the music, they immediately sang from a certain place of their own passion, as, mu as uh, singers would, uh -huh. on stage. So I think it took a while. Um, Michael had to discover a language that worked with all of us. And then in turn, we had to understand his language and then together sort of create new language and so that we could all understand each other. So I think that they took the directions well once that began to happen. So we had to find, I think he had to begin to speak with him, uh, speak with certain performers like Adam through a place of music and he attached to that immediately. Um, Adina is another uh, person. How who did you instill the disciplines of theater into the uh, rehearsal? <laughs> because <laughs> the rehearsal the, there, there is a, that's where it is distinctive to mm -hmm. almost any other right, uh, medium process. of art. They're smart. Uh -huh. They're all very smart in that way. Um, and I, all of them, I think, had a sense of performing. I don't think that anybody has not performed. It was uh -huh. just what, what, their, uh, <laughs> what their form was, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. um, some, like I said, were more musical, music background, singing rock or blues. Mm -hmm. And some were actors, and some were more dancer first than actor. So I think all of them had a sense of discipline about performance then it was just about understanding that particular craft of theater. Great job. I wanted to... Uh, uh, I want to get back to Mary, the nitty-gritty. That's just where I was, I was about to go there, too. Uh, and I wanted to start, Mary, by, by saying you obviously come out of a uh, famous, uh, world-famous uh, theatrical background, which did you find that difficult to break in with Mattress because of that? I mean, how did you uh, get that production going? Which was wonderful, and also, P.S. Did you have Carol Burnett in mind, or what? what, what no, you did. I started writing children's songs for Little Golden Records when I was twenty-one or two. I mean, those were my first sort of paying jobs. 
which were actually for hire. I didn't ask for royalties because I didn't know any better, and you'd think I would, considering who my father was. But I didn't know that way. He didn't help you out with that. Concept? It was too late. They, my mother and father both would say, "People will take you at the uh, price you, you know, put on yourself, and if you keep giving doing these songs for three hundred dollars." Uh, they'll think you're just cheap, and I said, "Yeah, but they'll hire me because if, they d if I don't do it that way, there'll be 900 other people begging for the job." And I, I do believe that mm -hmm. when you're an underling, you you do whatever you have to do. I, after doing those songs for uh, children's songs for quite a long time, Marshall Bower, whose idea it was originally to do a, a spoof of the the uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, uh, had in mind to do it with Nancy Walker. We expected to do it with Nancy Walker. She wanted to do it. This was after our preliminary she thing. Yes, she would have she been wonderful. Great. But guess who said no? Nancy Walker? Mr. Abbott. No, Nancy <laughs> Walker said yes. And we were all set. And Mr. Abbott had a production meeting. And he said, how many people, and this is everybody now, the, the designers, and, you know, everybody. Uh, well, now I'm going to do this show, and I have about May to do it in. So uh, how many people here want Nancy Walker in the production? And all the hands went up except George's. And he said, well, I guess I'm uh, uh, outvoted here, but I'm not going to have any fun if I have to do it this way. And so what do you do? George Abbott is the person from whom you're going to get money, uh, or you're going to get investors. And we landed up with Carol Burnett. What a pity. <laughs> now, uh, picking up on that a little bit, also on, on uh, if you will, uh, Mr. Abbott's contribution. And Melvin, you're uh, on the board of, or have been on the SSDNC. Not at the moment, but I All right, have. But you yes. have been. You have to explain SSDNC. I'm sorry, yes, the Society the of Stage Directors and Choreographers, <laughs> which is the, the Directors Guild, if you will. Directors and Choreographers. Yeah. Choreographers. Union. Union. Okay. We're actually a union. He has a union, and the well, you have a guild. have a union, and I'm quite cranky about that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You have to take that, that up with Peter Stowe. <laughs> well, he's cranky, too. What's the <laughs> difference between a union? He's always been cranky. What's the difference between a union and a guild? Yeah. We're a labor union. We are, in fact, a labor union, and the Dramatists Guild is an association of writers, I think, uh, who, who work together but have no... Um, the difference is that we don't have any clout, to put it quite Well... Uh, no, no, a guild really doesn't have the same kind of clout. As, as a director and a member of that union, you have to do what that union tells you to do. You do not have to do what the dramatist skill tells you to do. It can only be a recommended voluntary action. <coughs> and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. You don't abide by a certain uh, qualifications that the guild puts down? We try, especially the people who are uh, more successful or have gotten there, feel that it's their responsibility to uh, set a decent example for the younger kids, but if you're 24 and you have no money and you're doing stuff in a garage and uh, Manny Eisenberg comes along and says, I want to produce your play on Broadway, but I'm going to give you 50 cents a week, if you're Nikki and you're desperate because nobody's ever paid any attention to you, you'll say yes. Then the Dramatist Guild is supposed to go to Nikki and say, you can't accept that. And it's often very, very tough and it's the very rare young writer who has the balls to say, 
I'm going to turn this down because I believe in this in the strength of of a voluntary union. I'd actually that deal was hypothetical that you were just because yes, I, yes oh. but I could work that out for right, you later. Sounds good. But but Melvin, so how uh, and, and you know there are there are times and we know we've been through this where the director has felt, look, I have shepherded this play from the beginning uh, through from, uh, you know, uh, West Mastodon, Nostril, Montana, Rep, to now to Broadway. Now the playwright wants to get somebody else, or the producer says, I won't because you don't have a name. I want to use somebody else on Broadway. And the director says, okay, I, that I don't like, but if that is the case, I own what this, that, and how does that... That, that's really a problem now, more and more, I think. I, I created this idea or, you know. Well, um, uh, what we do is always in service of the play. Um, but just as the writer can get 50 cents in the garage, you know, if Manny wants to move the play, the director, you know, my, Manny can also say, but I could get Mike Nichols. And so somebody who spent a couple of years working on a project, um, it's not like... Um, How are you protected by your guild, though, from that happening? Don't they have to give you a piece of the action the way equity now demands it for actors who are in workshops? We have it in some jurisdictions, but, but not all. Um, uh, and uh, the problem is that before there's a producer, there is a director working with a writer. And so, you know, the, the, con the contract, as it were, must be between the director and the writer. Well, what I think a lot of people out here who are younger by far than I am need to know is that that wasn't always the case. There was a very important function for something called the producer in those days, and it was the producer who worked with the writer, and together they, they found the director. And the producer now has almost no function most of the time. You can name on one hand uh, the number of creative producers as against in the... 30s, 40s, 50s, where those people made a, uh, a tremendous artistic contribution to the work they and had functioned a as a third eye. Yes. Right. yes. <coughs> that was They're, Robert Whitehead, for example. Well, Whitehead he's about the is only one, one of the last One of the last ones. Yeah. Uh, and Roger Man Manny Eisenberg. Yeah. And Manny and Roger Berlin. Yes, although I don't think Roger, Roger would be, a, 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 and he's a lovely man with extremely good taste, but he's not an active, creative participant in the theater that I know of mm -hmm. in the way that that uh, Kermit uh, Bloomgarden or, or, or yeah. Wyman or, or, or someone else. I think that role, uh, to, a, to a large extent, has been uh, taken over by artistic directors of non-for-profit institutions. That's, That's it, uh, Lincoln Center Theater, Playwrights Horizons, the public, South Coast Rep. Th these are theaters that have uh, artistic directors with commitments to writers. Um, a great argument for off-Broadway. Yeah, but the director has taken on a lot of what used to be producer mm -hmm. function. I think that's true. When I started out, I mean, a producer called up and said, I've got this play. I, we want to open in New Haven on such and such a date, starting rehearsals four weeks earlier. Then we go to Washington. Then we go to Boston. And New York opening is February 26th. And that was the way it worked. And the script was ready to go. Now we do a play in a regional theater. And... We try to get producers to come and well, see Well, first it. you do a reading at the O'Neill. Then you do a workshop, and then you do a production at a... Exactly. At, you know, a, 
a first-class regional theater, and then you do a tour, and then it comes out. And then you do another regional theater right. the next year and trying to incorporate everybody's suggestions. Right. If you're doing all that, what's wrong with Nicky Silver taking 50 cents in order to get his play on Broadway, and then, or off-Broadway, whichever, and then if it's I'm working, on Broadway for 50 cents, I'm not making that. And then <laughs> say, okay, all right, I've contributed this much, and there's play and actors and all the arguments that one hears about yep. what you get out of a play. And then, if it works, then have some kind of a standard that he must apply himself to, of a dramatist guild or whatever it might be. But why not have the opportunity that actors want sure. to perform? Because that's the only thing they have as an audience. From the director's point of view, though, we are also working for 50 cents. When I did Da, we started at the Hudson Guild Theater. Right. I was paid $200. <laughs> altogether <laughs> for directing Da. And after we got reviewed in the Times, the next performance was like a meeting of the league. Every producer in town was there to see the show. And then they were bidding on the show, and we wound up doing it on Broadway. I could have been replaced. I had no guarantee mm -hmm. that I was going to continue with the show. Um, your membership meant, though, <laughs> your membership in, in the union meant that you couldn't be replaced. Is that what no, you No, we didn't have any of that then. I see. <laughs> we had nothing. I couldn't have been bought out. I mean, I could have been just discarded. And I would have put all that time in uh, for naught. And the reverse of that is that still true in a lot of jurisdictions. It is still true in a lot of jurisdictions. <laughs> and after, it seems to me, when you, uh, we were lucky with Da, because in, in, in the same season, it moved to Broadway. Uh, but sometimes you work, uh, um, Lloyd, Lloyd Richards and August Wilson work three or four years on a play in various venues before it appears in New York. Now, Lloyd certainly should be entitled, I certainly hope he gets, some percentage of the, the, the uh, subsidiary rights. Well, I think this is a very important part of the mm -hmm. discussion, and, and I'd like to continue, but we're going to have to stop right now for a minute to take a breath, stand up and stretch, and then go on with this. And, and I, I think that it's one of the most important things that's come out of the playwright director's seminars and... and, and because this is what people want to know. Uh, how, you, you know how you're protected, how you're not protected, and, and the responsibilities mm -hmm. of, of, of the playwright. So please, everybody, stretch, stop for a minute. Come right back and sit down, and we'll continue. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theater Wing seminars on working in the theater, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this seminar has a panel of, of uh, directors and playwrights and the one choreographer here, but we're all talking about what role each one plays in the development of the play and the play that you eventually, the audience, sees. So we're going to continue that right now with George White and Brenda Gill, co-directors. Uh, uh, Robert Frost once said that, uh, that uh, poetry was the application of the seat of the plant pants to the seat of the chair. And it's, in a sense, that's, that's true of, uh, of playwriting. But how does one learn how to become a director? We, we talked earlier about, about the, the, being a stage manager. 
But uh, David, perhaps you could talk a little bit, and, and Melvin, about how do you really learn? You talked about having mentors, but right. you know, now we have directing programs. Yeah, I mean, and I think they're, they're great. I teach in one now, as I said. Uh, I didn't go to graduate school, and I had a kind of an odd path um, that I, I don't know that I can recommend it because it was so strange, but it worked for me. I, I worked as a design assistant. Um, when I first got out of college, I uh, assisted um, a couple of set designers and also worked as a prop person. So I, I never had one of those horrible day jobs. I was always sort of in the real theater, and I learned a lot. And I worked with these, uh, am an amazing generation of set designers, the set designers who are now in their 40s, sort of a generation ahead of me, like Tony Stragas and John Arnone and uh, uh, Adrian LaBelle. Um, and I, I learned about the director-designer collaboration from the other end, uh, which has s stood me in very good stead. Uh, and then I sort of went through a, a period of being mentored, I suppose. I, I assisted James Lapine for about two years um, and Des Mackinoff. And those uh, two men are really were my graduate school. Um, and I learned by just, you know, sitting quietly. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I think directing is such an odd thing because you can only do it. Um, and that's why a directing program is useful because in a good directing program, you, you direct a lot. And people like, you know, Melvin Bernhardt or whomever will come and say, here's how I would have changed that, here's how I would have done this differently, but you're actually directing. What uh, did you think you were going to do when you were in college? Where were you in college? Here uh, in the East? I went, to, I went to Sarah Lawrence College and I studied philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, what a terrifically difficult thing to study. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, everything has seemed easy since then. But I have it to fall back on if this directing yeah, thing doesn't yeah. work out. Make money as a philosopher. But then yeah, what, yeah. How did you happen to go from that? I, I also yeah. was always interested in theater. And, um, did you I, do theater at Sarah I did theater also at Sarah Lawrence. Right. Um, my focus was philosophy, um, but I also uh, studied theater and, in fact, was actually directed at Sarah Lawrence. So I, by the time I graduated, I knew that that philosophy thing wasn't going to really work out. Uh -huh. um, and I had a feeling that theater uh, was where I uh, ought to end up. Mm -hmm. So I did, gradua I, I did graduate knowing. I, I left undergraduate school knowing I wanted to direct, which is a little unusual. I think most people come to directing a little bit later after mm -hmm. having been an actor or a stage manager. Um, but I... Uh, I sort of hit the ground running and assisted a couple of directors. Like Jerry Gutierrez was my very first job. I assisted Jerry. Um, How did you get that job? I was an intern at Playwrights Horizons, where I have directed Fit to Be Tied. Um, I was a you know a, a directing a intern. How did you know about? Being an intern, how did you know about Playwrights Horizons? How do you uh, know where to go that first step? It's all, such a, it's all sort of a strange chain of coincidences. Uh, Andre Bishop, who was then the artistic director, had an assistant who was a student. Her name is Rachel Chanoff. She was uh, a student at Sarah Lawrence, and she was sort of assisting him. And she said, there's this apprentice uh, or intern program, and I think you should apply. And I applied, and, uh, and I spent a year, my senior year of college, um, and I assisted Eleanor Renfield, uh, a, a director, um, and Jerry. And I kind of, it was a very exciting time to be at Playwrights Horizons, you know, because it was when they were doing uh, March of the Falsettos and Sister Mary Ignatius and The Dining Room and Krista Rang and Wendy Wasserstein and Albert Inarado were all sort of in residence at that theater. And it was very exciting. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a terrific move for me. Um, and Peter Parnell. 
So that's uh, how I learned. Yeah. Um, in terms of playwriting, uh, uh, Nikki, perhaps you can you can uh, maybe uh, maybe you're. Uh, you got involved uh, working with David because you, your work has not been compa compared to Immanuel Kant or anybody else. But, <laughs> but uh, now, how do you, seriously, how do you. Immanuel uh, no, yeah. who? Not yeah. yet. <laughs> no, 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 Manny Kant. Never mind. Uh, I'm familiar uh, yeah. with Immanuel Lewis. Okay, there you are. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, we've talked a little bit about how uh, David got going and you, you started working on your plays. Were you, did you always want to be a playwright? Were you an actor? What, what? Uh, well, I don't know what I wanted to do. I, 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 um, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I just wanted to get out of Philadelphia more than anything else. <laughs> I mean, not that there's anything. Philadelphia is a lovely city with many fine vistas. But, um, <laughs> but I really, I think I wanted to have sex. So I left, um, which I didn't feel comfortable in my parents' house having. And neither particularly did they, it seemed. Um, so I left uh, when I was 16, and I went, I mean, once or twice, I mean, sorry. Um, <laughs> I left when I was 16 and I went to NYU to study theater, but I didn't think I would be a playwright. I didn't know what I would do. I just wanted to be in the theater. I wanted to have some career in the theater. And I studied art and I studied theater and I was in plays. I went to the Experimental Theater Wing, which was great. And the idea there was you did a play with Liz Suedos for four weeks, then you did a play with Charles Ludlum for four weeks, then you did a play with Meredith Monk for four weeks. And the idea was to expose <laughs> you to all these different aesthetics and you were supposed to pick one that you liked. And, and um, I didn't. I ended up sort of smushing them all into writing um, but and you know and I had horrible miserable creepy pathetic wretched jobs like unlike De classy David who was assisting James Lapine <laughs> I, was, um, <laughs> I was like sweeping up hair in the barber shop it was just so grim <laughs> um, I mean I, I worked at you know I had all those restaurant jobs and everything and then eventually I ended up at, I worked at Barney's which was like very glamorous to me um, but and and I, I wrote a play after I finished college I wrote my first play and it was called Bridal Hunt and it was this very very mean-spirited very very vulgar, hard to believe really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> play uh, that, that uh, the Phoenix Theater, which is no longer around, uh, did a reading of, and I gave it to a friend of mine who worked there, and she gave it, she was a secretary, and I said, tell me if you think I can be a playwright, and she gave it to um, Steve Robman and David Copeland, who ran the theater at the time. And um, they said, it's going to be, prepare yourself, because it's a very dirty play for our subscribers. It's just a reading, and, uh, and they, they were going to be very offended. And it was, it was filthy. It was a filthy piece of tripe. <laughs> um, and like, so like the doddering, like the sort of like Manhattan Theater Club subscriber <laughs> audience, um, <laughs> they like, they schlepped in with their walkers. You couldn't fill the theater because they had to have like oxygen next to them. It was so frightening. And within like five minutes, you realized you could not be vulgar enough for these people. They adored it. And, um, <laughs> and the next day, the play at the time was Two Fish in the Sky with Cleavon Little, a play I bet you don't remember that was running at the Phoenix Theater because the next day they announced that they were going out of business. Um, <laughs> um, I like to think I have a hand in it. Um, <laughs> so that was that. But I did get my first agent. He was, uh, I invited like, every agent I could think of and several screamed at me because they were How like, did you know about the agents? That's how I questions. didn't. They said I, they didn't know where it was going to be. The Phoenix had no theater anymore and, and they were, had rented whatever they were doing, Two Fish in the Sky. And what a title. <laughs> and, and it was a, eventually it was at New Dramatist but they didn't and they said they didn't tell me, they said, we don't know how many people you can have, but I knew you had to have an agent. So I went to like the yellow pages or the white pages and I sent like 25 or 40, a, a lot of invitations that I went and I had them made look like wedding invitations. The play was called Bridal Hunt, so I had it look like wedding invitations and everything. And then they called me and they said, you can have eight people. 
So I had invited like 40 agents, and now they said I could have eight people. Now, as it turns out, there are only like 10 literary agents for the theater anyway. Most of them were like, you know, agents, like if you murder someone, you want to write a book about it or something. There were those kinds of agents. So I had to call and uninvite several. But then they came and they contacted me, and, and I interviewed with them. And now I feel I've gone on too long. But that, what was the question? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm done. You answered it. Right. I want to get back to what we were talking about before, of protection and overprotection as well by your unioning and various unioning guilds of, of, of your organizations. It seems to me that it's, it's hard to get an agent because today everything is so uh, stylized in a sense that you've got to go through the channels. How does a young man do it, what Nikki did today, or a young woman? Aggressively. <laughs> there, there's just... You, I, I went up to Tufts last week and, and talked to some theater kids up there, and they, one of them said, you know, there doesn't seem to be any musical theater in the Boston area, and uh, do you know of any? And I said, no, not offhand, but and asked the others. Nobody knew of any. I said, then get to New York. The thing is that you can't just sit around waiting for it to fall in your lap. I said, call up producers. Hal Prince, write a letter. Hal Prince is a terrific guy. He hires... Will he answer the letter? Yes. That's, that's yes. what we get yes. back to. Will but he answer? But the point answer? is, if will he doesn't answer, somebody him. will. Exactly the, the, the way David got there. <clears throat> well, I'm not a producer, but feel free to write me because I can always use a, a dog walker. There's, <laughs> there's another approach. <laughs> <laughs> There's another approach, he wants though. The if, job. If, if, if all these people want musical theater in the Boston area, start one. Start Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. We've Absolutely. got to make theater happen. Yeah. There are no holes waiting to be filled. We have to dig the hole and then say, I'm here to fill this hole. Yeah, well, you know, this is true. I, I, quickly, uh, as you know, Derek Walcott, who um, uh, grew up in Trinidad and won the Nobel Prize, he started, he, he came from an island where the theater did not exist, so he went out and he trained his actors, built his scenery, wrote the plays, and directed them and created the theater and didn't wait around for an agent. I mean, he really just did not But that takes money. It takes determination it's like and your, It's your garage syndrome. It, it, yeah. it doesn't take money. Yeah. I, I mean, we did, I, I did the first production of a play called Fat Men in Skirts uh, at, uh, at the Sanford Meisner Theater, and I think the budget for the whole show was $800. How so, and I, which I saved yeah. from my scooping ice cream cones was my job at the time. Mm -hmm. my, I did graduate from college. Those of you who are in college, this is what it prepares you for. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was $800. The same play since then has been produced many, many times over in New York with Marissa Tomei, directed by Joe Mantello. It's been in, in Copenhagen and Oslo, and, but it doesn't take money. It takes, it takes, a, it takes a, a personality that is so alienated from the mainstream of society that there is no other outlet for it. <laughs> Where did you go to college? NYU. Hmm. Yeah, I'm on the show thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I think that's very important. That's a question we keep being asked all the time, it's almost like a catch-20. You, 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 know, you can't get in, and, and, and you can't be seen, and you can't in until you get started, and you can't get started unless you've got the card. Well, it is, it and is very tricky it. for a director, because a playwright can wake up and say, I feel like writing a play today, and write a play. A director can't wake up, or it's not quite as easy um, to wake up and say, I want to direct a production of uh, The Imaginary Invalid today. Um, 
So there is a bit of a catch-22 when you're a young director, when, I, when you're just starting out in that no one will hire you because you have no experience and you can't get an experience because no one will hire you. But I think, as Nikki pointed out, if you just have to do it, if you have, if you, and if you really have something to say, you will find a way to say it and someone will hear you. Uh, I, I think that people, I think talent does, in a, in, 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 to a certain extent, talent will out. And as a playwright, I think it's She's leaving. David, go on. As a playwright, I was just going to say, it's important to do your research and also know where you're sending your scripts to. Because right. with my first script, uh, with FOB, I mean, after the Green Lantern play, um, I sent it to <laughs> several major regional theaters, and I sent it to the O'Neill. And um, I never heard back from the regional theaters. Right. And the O'Neill, which is devoted to the raison d'etre to some extent, is trying to find new writers, accepted the work. And then after it was done at the O'Neill, the regional theaters came up to me and said, well, why didn't you send me this play? And it's <laughs> one of those rare moments in your life where you get to go, I did, and feel some satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. We have questions here, and, and I know there are an awful lot of them that uh, need to be answered, but we're going to start right now with this young lady. Hi, um, my name is Jenna Esposito. I'm a first-year student at Sarah Lawrence College. <laughs> um, I'm focusing in directing and acting. So um, I have a question for Melvin and David. Um, a lot of what I've heard in my directing classes is that 90% of the directing comes from the casting. And I wanted to know from you um, how much you think that's true and how much of it has to do with how you work with what you have. Shall I go? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I'll join you. All right. Just correct me. <laughs> I, I think that casting is clearly a, a, a big chunk of the work. Um, and I also, I say this to my directing students a lot, you have to learn to recognize what an actor is in neutral. Um, because that will never really go away. An actor who is, has no sexuality will never have sexuality. You can figure out a way to help them indicate it. Uh, you know, a, a, an actor who's not particularly intelligent will never really seem intelligent. You can then sort of come up with ways to make that actor seem more intelligent um, by, I guess, dumbing down everybody around them. <laughs> but you, so it is important, but well, usually you have one or the other, I hope. Um, but uh, sometimes you have to you have to sort of work, particularly uh, you know in a college. I mean, I tell this to my students all the time. You have to figure out what is an interesting choice for a role. You know, maybe this person is uh, in some way opposite, um, in some way sort of the opposite of what you would want. But can you find a way to attach that odd casting? Um, to the play in a way that would be interesting. Um, Does that give you? you oh, but, but I think Melvin, leap in it if you want to. Uh, um, well, yeah, I'm uh, back. I, I, Sarah Lawrence, girl. <laughs> I agree. I agree completely with everything David said. And 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 um, <laughs> no matter how versatile an actor is, there are certain qualities that are present or not present. But I think in terms of directing, I had the experience once of doing a show with Julie Harris and. When it was on tour, Sandy Dennis replaced her. Now, these are both very talented women. Very Opposite. different performances. Totally different. And both satisfied the needs of the play. So there is something for a director to do, given a talented performer. <laughs> or that the play is, is so important that anyone can step in and do it? I wouldn't say anyone. anyone <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name is Roberta Surrett, and I call myself a writer, and this is for Nikki. I saw your food chain, and I liked it very much, and I respected very much your ability to take high risk. 
Now I see that your whole life is one high risk. <laughs> but did you consciously uh, strive for that when you were writing? No. <laughs> You're no, speechless. Never, what it do we never do? occurs to me. I don't know. I'm just being honest. You know, I grew up, uh, you know, um, I guess I was aware of the theater in the 70s, which I thought it was sort of my first, like, 1970, 1980 would be the formative years of my theatrical uh, mind. It was a nice dance I did about it. And uh, it, I think the theater was much riskier then, to be perfectly honest. I think, uh, you know, if you look back at, at, at what was being produced and what was being seen, uh, by a, a big cross-section of, of the public, I think it was much more daring, and that's sort of where I got my aesthetic. And it never occurs to me, I don't think anything I do is either risky or safe. I don't think you can think about it. I, you're so, it's, I mean, don't you think? It's like you're so lucky if you get, you feel so happy to have a germ of an idea. You can't go, it's too damn risky or it's too damn safe. You're just happy that something came that day. So, um, no, it's just, it's just an expression of your unconscious more than anything else. But I do think that that, that formed because it was a it was a more adventurous time we're living in a very theatrically conservative time i think sadly yeah thank you hi my name is mary kennedy and i'm a stage manager for special events at the juilliard school um this question is for david henry one um, my question to you is how did the critics affect your production do you feel uh the critics don't affect the production itself very much i mean it uh, it, that is what goes on stage. I think it certainly affects whether the production lives or dies and whether it has a life. Um, but, you know, I've generally had, I mean, the two Broadway experiences that I've had, um, both, we both, we got pummeled out of town in both cases. And one ended up being a hit in New York and the other one ended up being a flop. So, uh, but in neither case do I think that the, the out of town reviews uh, changed what we were doing. I mean, we sort of knew this was, that these problems remained in the play, and we kept working on them. Uh, and it's, it's a lot easier, obviously, to get good reviews, because, you know, had we uh, done so, say, with Butterfly, then we wouldn't have lost so much money out of town. We wouldn't have, like, had to crawl into New York. Um, but I think in terms of, the, of what we did on stage, we really tried not to be very influenced by, in both cases by the fact that we got bad reviews out of town. Does that answer? Yeah. Thank you. Hi, my name is Ronald Rand. I'm an actor and a playwright. I just spent the last five years writing a new play about the group theater. And I've done a couple of readings here in the city, and I was wondering what is the best way to proceed now to get it produced either regionally or in New York City? Hmm. Interesting yeah. question. Five years? <laughs> five years? Do you have a lot of research? So what? What's that? I can't imagine. It would it boggles. I mean, I would never. I just don't have the patience or wherewithal. <laughs> How long do you like that right now, Wilson? My God, five years. Yeah. Didn't you run out of paper? <laughs> um, I don't know. You sent it to O'Neill. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, it's it's basically just a question of since you've had readings of it, I assume you've invited <coughs> producers right. and people like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you sent it to agents. You've done all that. Right. Um, Do you have an agent? I have some, an agent who's interested in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good luck. I, I, yeah, I, actually, I, I will leap in a little bit on that. Uh, obviously, uh, as David talked about the O'Neill, yes, indeed, submit it. Uh, also, uh, I advise a lot of uh, playwrights to go to the um, uh, theater communications groups. Um, they have a major booklet that, is, that, that 
tells, it's uh, called Theater Profiles, and that organizes, you, you go through there and it really gives you a profile of theaters that really legitimately do new work, or if they say that, or if, even if they don't say it, and you look at the plays they produced in the last two or three years, you see how many are new, that will give you an idea, it helps you organize uh, your submission process because then you won't be sending it to some place that only does Moliere and, uh, and Shakespeare, but, you, the, but does new work. And that would be a, a way to focus your, your, your submissions. Yeah. One of the things that we haven't touched upon and is important is that when the play is running, how often director, playwright stops in to see the play and gives notes or doesn't. What, do you have a policy on that? David, because you, M. Butterfly ran, what, two years? Three? Uh, two, yeah. Um, Did you go and see it a lot, or no? I don't. You know, I, I don't know if you're. Were you serious when you said you don't really like to go to performances? Because I no, I but don't. I go all the time. Well, oh. it, it depends <laughs> on cast changes. Don't, I mean, I yeah. know. Well, when you have we to have, go, yeah. And I, it depends. I call, say, what famous people are coming tonight? I'm there, baby. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you don't know the guest list. What happened? I probably would go once every. Uh, maybe once every couple months, once it, once it really settled into and rhythm. And do you or find there's that there's change. been, in a long-running play, such as M. Butterfly, do mm -hmm. you find that there has been changes and, and taken? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, sometimes things get, things get really sloppy, to sure. And there's a case with a particular production where it's, you know, the play runs about 240, and after about, uh, after a month, it was running, like, 2.15. So everyone's just started, you know, and you just, yeah, you just got it. Uh, so that sort of thing is useful, and that's why I go. But basically, I, f I feel uncomfortable when I watch my own plays with an audience. I feel like I get in, this paranoia that they're going like, to stone me. What about in Actually, I have to see it every eight weeks. Really? Unless I'm working out of town, and then if I'm working out of town, I come back in town and, and have to see it. Um, I've seen it more than that. Um, just trying to keep it on its toes, particularly because my aesthetic is, I guess I'm being told it's unique for musical theater. I have a particular kind of eye, and I'm just getting to have a strong relationship with Yasmin, who is the dance captain, mm -hmm. and um, just sort of being clear on, on how to talk about the work. So I've seen it more often than not, but it begins to run loops in your head. <laughs> <laughs> but but do, you, do you find uh, that your performers are uh, doing, uh, uh, getting away from the choreography, is that uh, or not? Or? Um, initially, that could happen just very easily. Sure. Um, it can change to something else aesthetically, particularly certain numbers uh, like Santa Fe that really is, the whole thing was based on breath. Mm -hmm. And it can sometimes get very uh, uh, sharp and punchy. They're bored and they're dancing now sharp and punchy. So I have to come in some, from some times uh, and just sort of, you know, begin to talk about what it is and get them back to what it is. But now that doesn't happen as much. What I come in now and see is that they've transformed it to another level, and that's exciting when I, I have, see that. I've learned that a, a, a production will inevitably drift. And if you don't take care of it, it will become distorted. Uh, that, that seems to be uh, something that you can sort of assume will happen. I, I was very busy with Fit to be Tied when Summer and Smoke was running at the roundabout, and after a couple of weeks, Mary McDonald called me and said, David, I need help. Come back. Something is changing, and I need you to look at this. And so Gene uh, Smart broke her ankle that day, and so we had to cancel the preview. So I had the night off, and I went over to, to Summer and Smoke, and I was very upset, uh, not with anyone, because, uh, but it had changed. Um, Mary is smart enough to know it. 
I took about 200 notes. I sat down with the actors, and they were all really happy to be told again, this is, why, this is what we did, this is what this moment is. If you, if you put a huge pause in here, it, it, it completely changes the meaning of that event. Mm -hmm. So I think they do change. It was a lesson for me, and I think you have to go back. And I know that there are people who don't go very often, and it's very shocking to me. Food Chain ran about 11 months. There were three Bs, four Amandas, three Ottos. Thank God, only two surges and one uh, Ford. But and the not, it wasn't at the same time, so there was with after the first two months, there was someone new in in a five-character play where one of the characters doesn't speak. So there's someone new every three weeks, just about. It is what it felt like. Mm -hmm. I was there constantly, and it was a yeah. grind. How do you think? Well, there, there is certainly um, a, a deepening process uh, that happens as the play settles in, um, but then. Uh, and no matter how good your stage manager is at keeping the show the way you left it, the stage manager is seeing it eight times a week and is noticing the little changes, but not noticing them when they become major. And when you start to drift off, you keep going that way, and you can get pretty far afield. But you're exactly right. It's gradual. So the it's very gradual. It. I hadn't been back for three weeks, and suddenly the there were enormous changes, each of which was comprised of tiny little changes. Yeah. Well, that's why you have, a, you, thank God, you have a, really an intelligent actress right. like Mary, yeah. who's a particularly yeah. bright person who can see that and yeah. alert that. I mean, you yeah. don't always have that luxury. Right. Yeah. Of, of, I'm of, sorry, of, there is so much more to be said. We really need a lot more time and, and continue with this. It's been a, a wonderful discussion, a wonderful panel of playwright, directors, and choreographer. And this seminar is coming to you from the Graduate Center, the City University of New York. It is but one in a series of seminars of the American Theater Wings working in the theater. And today, I think, it has been extraordinarily helpful, interesting, wise, witty, and just wonderful. And I'm very grateful to all of you for being here. Thank you very, very much.